while members of Redeeming Grace Church, let me ask you, what are your hopes for our church? When you look toward the future, what would you hope to see the Lord accomplish among us in the coming years? Do you hope that we will be a community characterized by genuine love? Do you hope that we will be a church that stalwartly declares the truth of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ in season and out of season? Do you hope we will grow? Do you hope that the brothers and sisters at RGC will grow together in holiness and in maturity and in Christ-likeness? Do you want us to be a church that can help you grow into a person that is godly and wise and mature and fruitful? Do you hope we'll be a congregation that makes the Christian life look beautiful to outsiders? Do you hope that when someone who's not a Christian visits our church, they might just think, boy, there's something different about these people. I'd love to have whatever it is that they have. And do you hope that an unbeliever could come to one of our services and through what he sees and hears, he'd be convicted? The secrets of his heart would be disclosed and he would fall on his face in worship and declare that God is certainly in our midst. Do you want us to be a church like that? With all kinds of evangelism and discipleship and people getting saved and baptisms happening and us all growing up into Jesus? Do you want that? I hope that you do. Do you dream about that? Scheme about that? I hope that you do. But do you, would you like to know what it's going to take? What's it going to take for us to see RGC thrive in this way? Over the long term. I believe our text of scripture today in 1 Corinthians 14 gives us the answer to this question. It's going to take the members of our congregation being committed, deeply committed to edification. To the work of building one another up. And so my goal this morning, brothers and sisters, as I preach, is I want to challenge you to strive to excel in building up the church. I want to challenge me to strive to excel in building up the church. We need to strive to excel in building up the church. So please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you use a Bible from the seat in front of you, you'll find 1 Corinthians 14 on page 960. 960. I'll also direct your attention to this outline that's in your bulletin. It might help you follow along with the sermon today. We'll begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 5. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. 
For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. All right, what do we need to understand as we get into this passage? Well, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in the Greek city of Corinth. And in this section of the letter, which started back in chapter 11, he's instructing them on how they should conduct themselves in the worship services, how they should do church. Now, God has really blessed this church. They have all sorts of spiritual abilities that the Holy Spirit has given them. Some of the believers prophesy, which means they're receiving revelations from God and sharing them with the congregation. Some have extraordinary faith to believe God for significant things. Some have the ability to work miracles of healing. Some are skilled teachers of God's word. Some are just extremely competent in helping others. And some have this ability that we've seen in the first few verses to speak in languages or tongues that they haven't studied and they may not even understand themselves. God gives a supernatural ability to speak in other tongues. Now, BJ did really excellent work last Sunday giving an overview of the topic of spiritual gifts and explaining how they work. I'm not going to review all that material. If you've missed that sermon, you can find it on the website, and I encourage you to to listen. I think you'll find it extremely helpful. But here was BJ's upshot, and I think it was the right one. God gives spiritual gifts to his children for a purpose And that purpose is the common good. Not for my good only, but for the common good. We're supposed to use our spiritual gifts to bless one another. Now, the Corinthians have a problem. There's some ways they've been misusing their spiritual gifts that God has given them. So kids, imagine if your mom and dad gave you this really awesome birthday present, a brand new dartboard, maybe even one of those electronic ones with all the lights and stuff. And you got that for your birthday, and you took it outside, and you used it as a Frisbee. Now, would it probably work okay as a Frisbee dartboard? I think it could work pretty well as a Frisbee. It's nice and flat. It's all round. But that's not what your folks intended when they gave it to you, right? Now, the Corinthians were taking their spiritual gifts that God had given them, that their father had given them, and they were using them, but in the wrong way. They were using them in a self-serving way. Some of them instead of using their abilities to bless the rest of the church, were using them to make themselves look impressive. It seems that might have been especially the case with the gift of tongues. 
Now, this makes sense if you think about it. Speaking in another language does appear rather impressive, especially if no one around you can understand it. It would have seemed kind of grand for one of the Corinthian believers to stand up in the worship service and just start praying in Chinese, right? That would have been pretty impressive. And the other Christians would be like, wow, how cool is that? And and the tongue speaker himself might get to thinking, yeah, it is kind of cool, isn't it? I'm pretty stoked I got this cool gift. Sure glad I didn't get some lame gift like administration or something like that. (laughs) So now he's getting all prideful and others are feeling either overly fascinated by him or maybe a little bit small like, wow, with, with my gifts, I don't have anything like that to offer. Now meanwhile, you have over in this corner of the church, you've got a visitor who's not a Christian. And they lean over to the person that brung them, and they whisper, What's going on? What's he saying? And their Christian friend's like, Oh, we don't actually know. (laughs) He's He's just praying in another language. And the visitor goes, Okay. Now Paul wades into this situation and says, Guys, this is actually a problem. You're exercising your spiritual gifts, but not to bless one another, not to help one another. You're doing it to feed your own egos. And so instead of you being unified in the body of Christ, your wrong practice of the gifts is actually creating divisions among you, conflict among you. And Paul says, you know, guys, the gifts are great. The gifts are great, but there's something way more important. Now, what was it that he explained in 1 Corinthians 13 was way more important than the gifts? It was love. Love, the fruit of the Spirit, is greater than any spiritual gift. You can use the spiritual gifts without love, and you know what? It'll be worth nothing in the end. But real love... Christ's love flowing through us and out of us is the proof that your Christianity is real. Not the gifts. It's love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said. If you pray in tongues enough, if you administer properly, no, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. So in our text, 14.1, Paul resumes, after talking about love, he resumes his discussion of the spiritual gifts by saying, guys, pursue love. Pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And then he adds, especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may prophesy. Now, why would he say, especially desire to prophesy? Well, the reason is fairly simple. Prophecy, as we saw last week, is speaking a word from God which has been revealed to you by the Spirit for the benefit of your brothers and sisters. That's extremely useful. It's profitable for upbuilding. It's profitable for encouragement. It's profitable for consolation, verse 3. It builds up the church, verse 4. And, and Paul contrasts prophecy with the gift of tongues. Someone speaking in an unknown tongue is not able to communicate to the people around him because no one understands him. Now, God understands him, and God receives the praise. 
but it doesn't benefit the body. It just benefits the one person as a spiritual exercise. And it does benefit him, Paul says. But it doesn't benefit and bless the body. Now, think about it. If the standard, if the standard is love, if the goal is love, love's going to make it pretty clear which of these gifts is greater. If we're in the church service, tongue speaking only builds up one person. But prophecy builds up everybody because everybody understands it. And love wants as much blessing, as much benefit, as much building up as possible. So what do we conclude? Guys, some spiritual gifts are greater than others. And the greatness of the gifts is proportional to their capacity to build up the church. So the Corinthians are all enamored with the gift of tongues. But, but Paul says, hey, tongues are great. I wish you all spoke in tongues. But I'd far rather you all prophesied. Because I want you to be pursuing love above all things. And that means you recognize that edification of your brothers and sisters is the name of the game. It's the name of the game. Not personal spiritual fulfillment. It's not about you. It's about the whole body. Now let's take a minute to apply that to our own 21st century context. BJ argued in last week's sermon, and I agree with him, that the gift of prophecy, of speaking direct revelation from God, thus saith the Lord, that isn't actually operative in the church today. Ephesians indicates that it was a foundational gift given to the church during its infancy. And in these early years, the churches needed to know what saith the Lord. And so he gave revelations and prophetic gifts to supply that need. Well, now, now we have a completed Bible. We have a completed Bible with an Old Testament and a New Testament. The complete and sufficient word of God. We know what saith the Lord. It's found in this book. And so... B.J. argued, and I agreed, the gift of prophecy faded away in the first couple hundred years of the church. And though we're less sure, the gift of tongues may well have faded out also. Listen to last week if you want a defense of that. Now, if that's the case, though, and if we're not going to see prophecy or tongues here at RGC, then what relevance does this passage have for us? Lots. Lots and lots and lots of relevance. Because here's the overarching principle. Paul's telling us that we ought to desire spiritual gifts that allow us, especially allow us, to edify the church. And he specifically mentions upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And there are other spiritual gifts that are still with us today that serve those functions. For instance, the gift of encouragement and exhortation, for instance. That's the ability that God gives to speak into a brother or sister's life good, sound truth. Or it could be exercised publicly, like in our share time, speaking good, sound truth into all our lives, right? 
That's a gift with a great capacity for edification. Obviously, the gift of teaching God's word, that has a similar strong ability to edify, whether you're exercising it in the public worship service, whether you're you're using it in Awana or in uh, foundations or one of the other ways. The ability to teach God's word has a similar strong ability to edify. That's why it's really good for you to desire to be able to teach others the Bible and to grow in your ability to do so. Now, not all of us have the gift of teaching, but it's something worth desiring. And then I want to give a special word to the young men. Young men, and I want you boys to listen to me as well. Fellas, it's a noble ambition. It's a noble ambition to desire to become a pastor. to be employed by the Lord Jesus as a faithful shepherd and teacher in the church. Have you ever thought, guys, about the possibility that the Lord might call you into full-time ministry? Think about it. Your friends are going to think you're nuts. You can make a lot more money doing other stuff. The work's hard and full of care, and it never really stops. But boys, if the Lord gives you, gifts you with abilities to teach his word, consider it. Even you young ones, you ought to be dreaming a little bit. Yeah, maybe I could be a pastor or missionary when I grow up. It's not too early to start wondering that. It's not for everyone, and that's okay. But I'll tell you what, guys. Caring for souls, preaching the word of God, working for the eternal good of those who are under your care. That's a good work. That's a real good work. Mr. Walters and I and our generation won't be around forever. Now the Lord's going to be faithful to raise up men that we can pass the torch to. Is it possible that you could be one of them? Think about it. It's worth desiring gifts that are going to edify the body. All right, but the big picture idea, step back out, big picture. Every believer ought to desire to be gifted by God to build up the church. Let's move on now and read verses 6 through 19. We're going to see Paul explain what doesn't build up the church, and that's unintelligibility and confusion in worship. So read with me in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give, or, uh, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without its meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, 
strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you were saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in a church, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So all this is just Paul continuing to explain why prophecy is superior to tongues in the gathered worship. And it's because if a tongue's not interpreted, it doesn't bless the hearer. And he, and he kind of says two things. One, it's not helpful to your brothers and sisters. And then in a minute we'll see it's not helpful for unbelievers either. Paul says that even if he himself came to their church and only spoke in tongues, if he doesn't bring a prophecy or some teaching in their actual language, they won't benefit. It'd be like someone going up and playing random notes on the piano, just a lot of noise. Now, Paul does understand that what the person is saying in the tongue does have a meaning, because every language has a meaning. The problem is no one present knows what the meaning is except for the Lord. So if someone gets up in the church service and speaks in a tongue without interpretation, there's a, there's a rather unfortunate event. You're separated from your fellow Christians. They'll be a foreigner to you, and you'll be a foreigner to them. That's actually literally a bar- barbarian. You'll be a barbarian to them. They'll be a barbarian to you. Going, That's not how it's supposed to be in God's house. We're supposed to be part of one household of God, one holy nation. We're supposed to be unified, one family. And now we can't even understand each other. We shouldn't be treating our brothers and sisters in Christ like foreigners. That's not appropriate. Instead, we ought to, verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Let's let everything we do, especially here at church, be for the edification of the people around us. We ought to work. We ought to work at being maximally helpful to one another as we're seeking to grow in Christ and to do the things and focus on the things that are maximally helpful. That's why he says that if a person has the gift of tongues... That if He says that a person who has the gift of tongues should pray that someone else in the congregation will be enabled by the Spirit to interpret for the tongue. Then, if the brother does stand up and start speaking Chinese, well, someone else will be able to tell the rest of the assembly what he's saying because other people are given the gift of interpretation of tongues. So now we've got a tongue that's interpreted, that's understandable. It's a revelation from God that actually reveals something which essentially now makes it pretty, pretty, pretty close to prophecy. Now it's edifying. Now it's, we're all good in that case because everyone can say amen when he sits down. Because everyone actually understands. 
Everyone's edified. Because again, the name of the game is edification. Building one another up. In verse 20 then, look at verse 20. We see the gift of tongues in worship if they're not interpreted. It's not good for unbelievers either. So, verse 20. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So here's what's going on with the non-Christian. Being talked at by people of strange tongues in the Bible, that's a sign of God's judgment. And it's been that way ever since the Tower of Babel, back in Genesis 11, which Damien read for us. After Noah's flood, everybody on earth had the same language. But they wanted to make a name for themselves, right? They wanted to exalt themselves. They start building a city with a tower that's going to reach up to the heavens. And, and this is displeasing to the Lord. They were rebelling against him. They were seeking exaltation on their own terms instead of on his. And so he comes down and he confuses their language and suddenly they're not able to communicate anymore. And their whole building project gets thrown into confusion and they have to abandon the city. And they're scattered throughout the earth. And ever since then, confused and unintelligible tongues are a sign of God's judgment. We see that in the quote that you see in verse 21. That's actually from Isaiah 28. So fast forward a thousand years or so, and you have the people of Israel, and they're all rebellious, and and they're, they're listening to the prophets. They're listening to God's prophets speak the word of the Lord, and, and they think that the words of the prophets are gibberish. They're like, they're like baby talk. What are you doing telling us all this stuff? And God says to them, I'll show you gibberish. I'm going to bring Babylon against you. And the Babylonian soldiers are going to speak gibberish to you on the day that you, they destroy you. See, again, unintelligible language is a sign of judgment. It's a sign for the unbeliever of God's judgment. So back to Corinth now. So let's say an unbeliever comes to church in Corinth and they see a bunch of Christians all speaking languages they can't understand, maybe even at the same time, and no one's interpreting. They're going to think you're a whole bunch of crazy. Now, that wouldn't actually be true, of course, because these tongue speakers would be exercising their spiritual gift. They'd be speaking to God 
from God. They'd be speaking to and from God, but not to anyone else. But that unbelieving visitor is, going to be, is probably going to be turned off. And they're going to think this Christianity thing is super weird, and they're going to head for the door. Now, their unbelieving reaction that's provoked by the tongues would actually be a sign of God's judgment remaining on them because they don't turn to Jesus and believe. But is that what we want to have happen because of our church services? Of course it isn't. Our goal ought to be that when a non-Christian walks through our doors, they hear a clear word from God. That they have the message of salvation in Jesus explained to them clearly and plainly. And when that happens, sometimes, sometimes, like it did a year and a half ago with Damon Rooney, sometimes God will move in their hearts to convict them of the truth that they're sinners in desperate need of the salvation that Jesus offers. And they'll come to recognize, yes, God God is here in this place. And this good news that the Christians are telling me about, about how I can be saved from my sins, I understand that's actually true. And right there and then he got saved. They fall on their face in faith and repentance. And that happens. That happens. Praise God, it happens. That's what we want in our worship services, isn't it? Now, by the way, this is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost, which Damien also read for us. On the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit fell on the church and they began to speak to the people in Jerusalem in other tongues as they proclaimed the message about Jesus. Now, on that occasion, the tongues were all known to someone, some portion of the crowd. And so these apostles from Galilee were by the Spirit speaking the languages of Persia and Crete and Arabia, and Rome, to the people from those regions. And you know what that is? That's, that's the opposite of Babel. That's the opposite of Babel. God used tongues at Babel to scatter. Now he's using tongues to gather because they can understand them again. God's turning the tables. He's reversing his judgment. He's pouring out now salvation blessings through tongues that people can understand. And so instead of all the nations scattering, God's gathering the nations back to himself and bringing them into one family and one people through Jesus Christ. That's what tongues do when they're interpreted. And the church, our church, what's it, is it supposed to look like Babel or Pentecost? Is it supposed to look like judgment or salvation? Our gatherings should be occasions for people to get clear and get saved. Not to get confused and remain under judgment. So what's the application here? RGC, let us make sure that everything we do in worship is actually going to make the gospel message clear and plain and glorious. Let's make sure we preach and pray and sing 
and share and celebrate baptism and celebrate the Lord's table and anything else we do, let's make sure Jesus Christ is front and center because that's what we need for our building up. And that's what our unbelieving friends need also, that they might be saved. Let's be clear. Let's seek edification. Think back to our baptismal service a couple weeks ago. We're all referencing it because it's so fantastic. Six gospel testimonies from six new believers, plus BJ's homily on how baptism proclaims the gospel. And you know there were over 250 people there that night. My wife, Elisa, commented to me afterwards, that's over 1,500 individual hearings of the gospel. Over 1,500. And many of the folks there were guests. And those testimonies were beautiful and they were clear, weren't they? They proclaimed, those new Brothers and sisters, they proclaim the gospel message. What is that? That a person must believe if they're going to be saved? That you must believe if you're going to be saved? What did they tell us? They all told us something like this. God's my creator and my Lord, but I rebelled against him in my sin. I deserve death. I deserve judgment and hell for my sin. But God sent his son, Jesus, to be the savior that I needed. Jesus, the God-man. Jesus, who lived the perfectly righteous life that I should have lived. On the cross, dying the death that I deserve to die for my sin. Then he rose from the dead and is now seated in heaven as Lord and Christ. And I realized that I needed to believe on him and repent of my sins. I needed to believe on him as the only savior... I needed to repent and submit to him as my king. I testify that I've done that and that Jesus is now in the process of transforming my life. Six different stories. All six stories the same. All those people hearing that and we want for that same message to go out again and again and again and again to those who come into our midst who don't yet know Jesus but need to. Some of you in this room. It's just another Sunday. We're going to tell them again. Amen? Are you eager? Members of Redeeming Grace Church, are you eager to be part of that glorious work, brothers and sisters? Are you personally willing to say, I'm part of this. I'm going to strive to excel at building up the church. Let's do this. Let's see believers grow. Let's see unbelievers saved. I'm in. Okay, how do I edify? How do I edify? Well, how can we edify? How can we strive? To build up the church. What edifies? Well, according to verses 26 through 40, it's (laughs) it's not very sexy. It's decency and order in worship that builds up because that's what makes the gospel clear. That's the clear big picture. Now, as we read these verses, they have some complicated details, but I want you to focus on that big picture. 
What edifies? What edifies? Decency and order in worship. Verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. As if he hadn't said that already enough times. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent. You see that word silent several times. Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to one to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn or to inquire about, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So what does Paul expect? That the believers in Corinth should all come to worship prepared to exercise their various gifts in appropriate ways so that the church can be built up. Some come with songs. Some with teaching. Some with prophecy. Some with a tongue. And now he lays down some guardrails. Okay, you tongue speakers, only two or at most three tongues, and they have to be one at a time, and they have to be interpreted so that everyone can profit, everyone can be built up. If there's no one to interpret the tongue that you have, just keep quiet and speak to God. Okay? Decency and in order for edification. You prophets, only two or three prophets speak. And let the church evaluate the prophet's words so that it may be clear that they are true prophets speaking true prophecy as 1 John 4 would also command. So the prophets also are supposed to speak in turn, not interrupting one another. And they need to be willing to give way for each other. Their prophecy can and should be orderly because true prophets have self-control. And they can restrain themselves if that's what's going to be best for edification. Our God is a God of peace, of harmony, not of confusion. And he expects us to order our worship in a way that promotes peace. Now in 34 and 35, Paul gives direction that the women are to remain silent and refrain from speaking. What rule is he laying down there? Well, here's, it's, it's, it's a little hard, but let, let's start with what it's not saying. 
No one thinks this is an absolute prohibition on women participating in any way in worship, but rather that they must participate in certain appropriate ways. We get this from chapter 11, verse 5, which we've already looked at. And Paul explains how women ought to conduct themselves when they're praying or prophesying. Ladies, when you're praying or prophesying, you know, if you do this, it's, it's not, it's not going to be great. If you're not under the submission of your husbands, it's not going to be great. Right? Don't do that. Well, that assumes that they are praying or prophesying. And Paul's not like forgotten chapter 11 when he gets to chapter 14. Like that wasn't that long ago. Right? So Paul is assuming women will be praying and prophesying during public worship, which means that whatever silence means, it, it doesn't mean just like an absolute, like no praying, no prophesying, no participating. What does he want them not to do then in chapter 14? I'm going to give it a shot. There's a parallel text in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that he does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then he gives several reasons for that from the book of Genesis, including the order of creation, that man was created first and then woman, and that the woman was deceived and not the man by the serpent. So he gives reasons for why women are not to teach or exercise authority. I think the parallel between our text and that text is pretty tight. So women are not permitted to speak, 1 Corinthians 14, our text, because that's shameful. Rather, they should be in submission, which I think can mean not exercise authority. Then over in 1 Timothy 2, women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority, but they should learn quietly in all submissiveness. Very similar language. And this leads me to thinking that women were welcome to participate in the public worship praying and even prophesying. But what they were prohibited from doing was teaching, teaching the mixed congregation or speaking as an authority and thus having authority over the men. Now, if that's the case, if I'm right, then that would be an ongoing principle that would govern our pattern of worship even today. See, Scripture has just clearly shown us that the Lord has given authority in the home and in the church to men. We gladly acknowledge, therefore, and celebrate all the many ways that women do contribute in the worship service while we still preserve the authority structure that is ordained by God. It's obviously a tricky couple of verses. And may the Lord grant me more light as I continue to study it. But that's my best guess. By the way, here's just another word of challenge to those of us who are husbands. This comes from the Puritan commentary, commentator Matthew Henry. He notes how in verse 35, look back at 35, it says wives are to ask their husbands about spiritual matters at home. And so then Matthew Henry says, as it is the woman's duty to learn in subjection, it is the man's duty to keep up by being able to instruct her. If it be her duty to ask her husband at home, it is his concern and duty to endeavor at least to be able to answer 
her, que her questions. <sighs> Shots fired. <laughs> Men, let's, let's always be seeking to grow in our understanding of God's word so that we can lead our wives wisely and capably. All right, Paul's next directives are very clear. He says, I think regarding the whole passage, he thinks, if anyone is inclined to disobey his instructions, because they're so super spiritual, or they have the spirit of prophecy or whatever, if they're inclined to disregard what he's saying and disobey it, they need to recognize that what he's speaking is as an apostle of Christ Jesus, and therefore it's a command of the Lord. Don't disregard me, he says. They've got to heed his words on the order of worship. And then at last, let's read verses 39 and 40. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. He wants the, the Corinthians to desire prophecy. Why? Because it's the most edifying. He doesn't want them to forbid speaking in tongues if there's interpretation, because that's edifying too. In all things, let there be edification. In all things, let there be decency and order. Because decency and order promote edification. And chaos doesn't. So let's not have a chaotic worship service, he says. All right, friends. This is a, this is a tricky text in some of its details. So glad BJ gave it to me. <laughs> but I think the overall point is actually super clear. The goal in worship is to maximize edification. So let us at RGC also pursue love by striving to excel in building up the church. What can this mean practically? Here's a few thoughts. Brothers and sisters, let's prepare for worship ahead of time. Ask, how can I strive to do good to my brothers and sisters today and unbelievers too as I prepare to come to worship? Does it mean reading the passage ahead of time? Does it mean praying for the preacher? Get ready for Sunday morning worship. Come to church ready to edify. Ready to sing. Let me ask you, folks, which builds up the church? Does it, does it build up the church when you stand silent? When all the saints are singing God's praise? Does that edify? Or does, does lifting up your voice with the saints, even if you're off-key or unskilled or you're not quite sure of the song? Which of those edifies? Come ready to exhort and encourage. You know, if, you, if you're not a newbie, you know we have a share time approximately every other week. It's not quite every other week, but it's approximately every other week. Which means that twice a month, you have an opportunity to speak words of edification and encouragement in order to build up your brothers and sisters in the share time. Do we come ready with something to contribute? He goes back and he says, everyone has, each, each one has their thing that they're bringing. 
Do you have something you're looking to contribute, whether it's a prayer request, a story of how you tried to share the gospel, some truth that's ministered to your heart out of God's word? Now, what if you get to church and, ah, we don't have a share time this week? Well, let's see. You could save it for next week. You could probably do that, right? I'm picking on you. Or you could be ready to encourage someone with it privately after the service. Does your brother or your sister that you see, do they need a word of comfort, of fellowship, of godly advice, even correction? Does, is there an unbeliever who needs a private appeal? Hey, hey, buddy, what, what are you going to do with the gospel that you heard today? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to believe? What if we came ready to speak intentionally into one another's lives? Let's come ready to serve and help. What needs are going to come up over the course of the morning? Someone's sick, can't cover their responsibilities. Be a bummer for you if you were asked to step in? Or was it like, oh, of course. Someone's toddler's just having a super hard time and mom could use a hand. There's a visitor nearby where you're sitting who would really appreciate a friendly welcome. Are you ready to serve? Are you ready to help? Ready to not seek your own. Yeah, love doesn't seek its own, remember? Love doesn't seek its own. In everything you're doing, before and during and after the worship service, is it about you and what makes you comfortable and what gives you the most satisfaction personally? Or is this whole thing about being here to bless the people around you and see them built up? See, brother and sister, members of Redeeming Grace, this is the kind of mentality that I believe God will bless as we seek to be a thriving church, a fruitful church the way we hope to be. And now a final word to those of you who are still outside of Christ. Maybe you're here for the very first time. Maybe you've been here for years. Do you sense that God's presence is here at Redeeming Grace? Do you get the impression that there's something different here, something appealing, something of love and truth that you haven't been able to find in the world? Well, first off, if that's the case, in any measure, we would want you to know that's not our doing. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who saves sinners by His grace. He's the one who paid the debt of sin when He died on the cross. He's the one that calls you to respond to Him by believing. And He's the one who transforms the lives of those who do believe so that they are, in fact, new creatures living out His love. It's not us. It is Him. All glory to Him. But second... Maybe you do like what you see here. Maybe you do sense that God is in this place and he started to tug on your heart and whisper to you that you kind of need this. You, You really need this. 
then let me suggest, would you let us in? Let the believers here, even the leadership here, let us in a little bit. Maybe start by just reaching out and asking for some questions. Like, hey, can we get together for coffee? Answer, yes. What's sin? What's Jesus got to do with me? What do I need to get right with God? Here's my story. What would the Bible have to say to someone in my situation? And then, actually give us a hearing. Let us share the good news of Jesus with you. It's the best news in all the world. Come to the Christianity Explained course and dig in there. And if you're talking with one of your Christian friends and they say something that you don't expect or, or even something that you don't like or that kind of tweaks you or that offends you, can I ask, don't, don't withdraw. At least ask us, help me understand what you mean. Can you show me that from the Bible? My friend, God says that he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What if you were to start admitting that you don't actually have all this figured out? And you start being willing to listen to those who have found the hope that's to be found in Jesus. Because you need him. So ask away. Ask away. God is in this place. That's not me being arrogant. It's all him, it's not us. It's Jesus' love that I trust that you're sensing flowing in and through his people. And that love can be yours too, even today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And when he finds the one who is lost... He brings them into the family and he makes them part of a glorious community that's growing in the Lord together until we all reach maturity. Lord, I would ask and covet that for every person who is listening today. From 99 down to 3 and the babies too. Lord, may may your gospel work in the context of this church as we seek to edify one another. Let us strive, Father, to edify one another. In Jesus' name, amen.